This is episode 48 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 48 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we chat with Father John Paul Kimes of Notre Dame Law School and our Raymond of Penyafort Fellow in Canon Law at the DeNicola Center. We chat about his years of work in the disciplinary section of the Congregation of the Doctrine for the Faith, as well as Pope Francis's idea of the throwaway culture. Let's sit together at an appropriate social distance for this delightful conversation. Well, Father John Paul Kimes, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for inviting me, Ken. It's always a pleasure. So tell us a bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you go to college? What did you study? Those sorts of things. Sure. Uh, I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, I graduated from the University of Notre Dame, so I went to Notre Dame as an undergrad with a degree in theology and a made-up degree in Semitic languages. Uh, One of my best friends in college and I were the first two students at Notre Dame to take eight semesters of Arabic. We basically kept forcing the university to add another semester as we went forward. And at the end, because she had studied archaeology and she now teaches at the University of Virginia, uh, so they gave Vanessa a degree in Semitic cultures and they gave me a degree in Semitic languages. So we have two manufactured degrees that I don't know if anyone else has ever received. So, And then what did you do after college? So after college, um, at the time, this is before the Alliance for Catholic Education was born, and Notre Dame had already was, was trying to make a significant investment uh, in Catholic education, uh, grade school and high school Catholic education in America. And so one of the first attempts, one of the first programs that Notre Dame did is they had a co-sponsored internship in the Department of Education at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. So I was... I think the third of a series of what turned out to be seven or so interns uh, that the University of Notre Dame sponsored at the Bishop, the Conference for Bishops in the Education Department. So I did oh. – it was a one-year position. Uh, basically, Notre Dame paid your salary, but you worked for the Bishops' Conference. And it was sort of a, a pre-ACE attempt at the university to begin to uh, create – interest in leadership roles in Catholic education among recent Notre Dame grads. So I, I did that. I worked in the USCCB for one year uh, as a research intern in the education department, excuse me. And then after that, I uh, went off to seminary. You discerned a vocation. I did. I, d- I discerned. I discerned a vocation, and my bishop discerned a different vocation. I shouldn't say a different vocation. My di- my bishop discerned a more specific vocation. <laughs> I was, I was working in in Washington, and I didn't you know really didn't know what to do. So I picked up the phone and called my bishop, and said, uh, you know, I think I need to go to seminary. And my bishop's response was, you will love Rome and you will make a great canon lawyer. <laughs> so, so his discernment of my vocation was immediately more specific than my own. So I guess I was kind of, he already had in mind a very clear path for me that I had not yet discerned. So. <laughs> And then in Rome, you studied the, at the North American College. I did. I was at the North American College. I studied there for five years. Um, okay. 
was ordained a priest in uh, the year 2000, so a Jubilee priest, which is good for somebody like me who's bad with numbers, so at least I know how long I've been ordained, because I just have to do a little bit of subtraction. So, <laughs> so 20 years of priest. So 20 years of priest. Um, Monsignor Timothy Dolan was your rector. He was. Then Monsignor Timothy Dolan was the rector um, for my first four years at the college. Uh, and then he uh, moved back to the States and was ma- was made auxiliary bishop in St. Louis um, yeah. upon his return to the States. So I had the great privilege of having him as a rector, and I count him as a, a, a dear counselor and friend, I dare say. Yeah, fun. Tell us about your studies in Rome, because you obviously – you did study canon law, but but there's also the basic kind of priesthood formation first. Right. So the the, the way the system in, in Rome works is the priest the priestly formation itself takes, takes place in the Pontifical North American College. So everything you need to learn about how to be a priest. So, um, you know, forming your spiritual life, uh, forming yourself as a preacher, forming yourself as a sacramental minister, all of those sort of practical aspects take place, uh, practical and spiritual aspects take place in the North American College. And then for the education, you get to choose between, uh, at the time, two universities. Now there's a little more freedom to choose different programs. I, um, at the behest of my uh, bishop and, you know, in, uh, Loved it as well. I ended up at the Pontifical Gregorian University for what in Roman terminology is your first cycle. So you you do your theology degree uh, that's required for priestly ordination. You do that, and I did that at the Gregorian University. So that – and then from there, that's your first three years, and then in your fourth year, you're ordained a deacon. And then you begin your licentiate studies. So a, a license um, is kind of the pontifical equivalent of a master's degree, but it allows you to to do or teach a certain uh, area of theology uh, in the name of the church. So I received a license in canon law, but I studied at the Pontifical Oriental Institute, since I'm a Maronite priest, an Eastern Catholic uh, the Pontifical Oriental Institute is sort of the center in Rome for Eastern Catholic and Christian studies. That's near St. Mary Major? Yeah, it's right It's right off of – so for those that are familiar with Rome, it's right next to St. Mary Major. It's just down a half a block. Um, again, it's part of the Gregorian University because uh, when it was founded, the mission of training Eastern Catholic priests in uh, in theology and canon law was entrusted to the Jesuits. So sure. it's all part of the Gregorian uh, University. Did you finish your... Uh, yeah, so I finished my licentiate so, uh, okay. in 2001 and uh, was sent back to Rome immediately. So I kind of packed up my boxes from the Pontifical North American College and put them in a van and drove them down into the heart of the city by the Trevi Fountain where the other American house is, uh, which is called the the Casa Santa Maria, which is a, a house for diocesan priests who are doing graduate studies. So those who have already been ordained who are doing graduate studies. So I moved from the seminary to sort of the advanced studies house uh, and then started doing my doctorate. Stayed in Rome until December of 2003. That's when I moved to Detroit. So I was sent to uh, the Maronite community in Detroit as an assistant pastor on December 17th, 2003. 
<laughs> a date that will a date life, that lives in, in yes yeah, so the, the the poor boy from Alabama who lands in a snowstorm in Detroit and has to walk to a rental car carrying everything that he owns from Rome yeah it was a it was it was a memorable day let's just say that <laughs> and how long did you get to do pastoral ministry there in Detroit yeah so I was stationed in Detroit for just over five years uh, I arrived in December of 2003 as I said and I left in February the end of February of 2009 so. The Maronite community in Detroit is very large. So as far as pastoral ministry goes, it's like uh, pastoral ministry on steroids. You know, I was blessed in a real sense to uh, perform as many baptisms, weddings, funerals, anointings of the sick, and whatnot in one year as my own pastor in Alabama would do in seven Wow. So, it, you know, I claim that Detroit aged me in dog years because it was it was literally <laughs> like doing seven times the work, which was beautiful and wonderful and foundational in a certain sense, uh, given everything that's happened after that. After that, then you mm-hmm. went back to Rome. I did. So. I went back to Rome. So <laughs> This just, Alabama boy spends this, a lot of time speaking Italian. That's what my mother says all the time. <laughs> He does. Uh, so he packed up in February of 2009 from Detroit. I packed up and then in the middle of March 2009, moved back to Rome. Uh, my bishop had received a letter from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith saying that they were looking for canon lawyers and they wanted me to come and serve as a canon lawyer in the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And my bishop and I had a conversation, and he was open to it. I was more than open to it. Uh, So he agreed and released me uh, from the eparchy, from the diocese, to go and work at the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith as a canon lawyer. And so what was your kind of... What was your day job like there? Yeah. Now you moved from being pastoral ministry to yeah. an administrator? Uh, not exactly. No? Um, so I moved, you know, it, it was a desk job for okay. sure. So definitely an office job, a desk job. So you're, you know, it's the, the hard part is, you know, moving to, you know, I, I'll generously say a nine to five world. That was not the alpha, <laughs> that not the hours that we kept, but we did work on Saturdays. So you can't, can't complain too much. But you had siesta uh, in the middle of the day, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, and so. Some days you didn't go back in the afternoon, but that's okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, because when we were in the office, um, it was again, it was not administrative so much as it was tribunal work. Uh, so it was okay. canon law work. And what I was doing, I was part of, at the time, a group of nine canon lawyers who were responsible for handling in some fashion every allegation of sexual abuse of a minor against a cleric, uh, against a, you know, against a Catholic cleric, so a deacon or a priest anywhere in the world. Every case in the world at some point filtered through the nine of us. Wow. Uh, So it was uh, a huge change from pastoral ministry for sure. But it was not um, your sort of everyday desk job, you know, stamp here, sign there kind of thing at all. Yeah. This was uh, starting in 2009 when, of course, this was the second wave in a, in a way, or it was actually yeah. before kind of the so second wave of scandals? In, in we, you know, as far as uh, cases from the U.S. goes, the, the, the United States sent a, a, a virtual avalanche of cases over to Rome, cases that had accumulated over the years and hadn't been dealt with or either hadn't been dealt with at all or hadn't been dealt with sufficiently or hadn't been dealt with in a legitimate 
canonical form, so according uh-huh. to church law. Right. So the U.S. sent over literally an avalanche of cases, uh, and when I arrived in 2009, we were still finishing up that avalanche. And at that point, scandals broke out, uh, particularly in Europe. We think of Ireland, sure. uh, Belgium, Germany in particular. Those three countries around 2009, 2010 experienced their own sort of uh, spotlight moment, if mm-hmm. you will, to mm-hmm. use the American experience. Um, so, And from there, it was just a, a chain of dominoes. So from I spent almost 11 years uh, working in that tribunal every day, spending 98% of my days on cases of sexual abuse of minors. That's got to be heartbreaking. It's, it is, but in uh, a very strange way, it was a great moment of grace. Um, it's a moment where that helped me see how God had prepared me to be uh, capable of of affronting, you know, of taking those cases head on and of dealing with them both as a human being in front of the human tragedy of sexual abuse of minors and as a priest, again, the ecclesial tragedy, um, that these are men to whom God's greatest gifts have been entrusted who abuse those gifts in order to, you know, obtain sexual gratification through through minors. So it was both uh, tragic and heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, but it was also a great moment of grace in that I was able to work with men and women, uh, and I saw in them how God had prepared them to be able to have the strength, both the intellect and the strength, uh, both the strength of spirit, the strength of character, to face down in a real sense to sort of take head on this problem and seeing that strength in them, I, you know, found it reflected in myself as well and really saw that as, as God's grace. Um, you know, uh, I, I would never say I was the, you know, I was put in the right place at the right time with the right tools to be of service to the universal church. Um, yeah. So it was, it was, it was both daily gut riching and also heartening the same time which is which sounds ironic to people but it's i think often for most of us it's in those great times of difficulty that we truly witness god's grace uh, in our own lives and so i was blessed to have almost 11 years of that sort of daily witness of the power of god uh, working in my life and having prepared me to do that job yeah was there a pastoral aspect to your life in rome as well i mean other than your kind of your day job? Did you also get to do pastoral ministry? Uh, I would say, I mean, not not in any normal sense, not in any regular sense. Um, a lot of guys seek that out and a lot of guys need that. I, for the way that I work, I'm, my a, a lot of the evil that I was exposed to, um, you know, I, I, I didn't feel like I could then go out into a parish and mm-hmm. bring the light and joy of the gospel uh, when I had just, you know, sort of sucked down all of the darkness of evil. So, but what I was able to do is, again, working with the University of Notre Dame, uh, I was given the opportunity to teach a theology class specifically to Notre Dame's architecture students. 
And so the architects spend their entire third year, all of every architect, uh, everyone who graduates from the, the School of Architecture of Notre Dame spends their third year in Rome, of course, except for this year. Uh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> up until now, uh, for um, over 40 years, they've, they've had this program. And I was uh, asked, if I would be able to teach a theology class to them. And so for three hours on Thursday afternoons, I got to go and share theology, share the love of God and his love for his people with these architecture students. And that was tremendously life-giving. So it was, it, that was, I considered that my pastoral ministry. It was sort of a modified vision of pastoral ministry. <laughs> right, right. But nevertheless, you know, being available and spending time with young men and women uh, who, you know, ask great questions about faith and religion and, and the power of God in their lives, both in an, you know, both in an intellectual sense in the class, because of course it's an academic class, but also being available for those moments of spiritual questioning as well. So I could, I saw my architecture students as sort of my little, my little pastoral outreach, uh, right. during my time in Rome. How did you first get connected then to the to Nicholas Center for Ethics and Culture. Yeah, so I came to find out about the Center for Ethics and Culture uh, in the what I think is the uh, essential model of the Center for Ethics and Culture. A friend, <laughs> my dear friend, uh, Father Bill Daly, picked up the phone uh, and texted me and said, hey, this guy Carter Schneed is coming to Rome. Would you have some time to show him around and, and you know help him out if he needs anything? So a friend reached out to me and I, of course, said, yes, anything for you. I don't know this guy, Carter Sneed. I don't know who he is. So, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and then Carter Sneed uh, you know, landed in Rome and landed in my life, and, yeah. uh, as Carter does, as and as God's grace does, as friendship does. Uh, Carter and I became very fast friends because I came to find out that he also had grown up in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm -hmm. And amazingly, given the small dimensions of the Catholic community in Birmingham, Alabama, when he and I grew up together, our lives intersected, but we didn't realize it at the time. Uh, so, so now, many years later, we can sit back and reminisce about being at the same birthday party or playing soccer against each other. And it was unknown. It was just another kid across the way. It was just another room. kid across the way. And now yeah. that kid across the way, uh, it turns out to be Carter Sneed. <laughs> and thanks to my friendship with Father Bill Daly and Father Bill Daly's friendship with Carter, I've now had the opportunity to build that friendship with Carter and to extend that friendship to others in the Center for Ethics and Culture. So I, yeah. I came to know about the Center through its most basic uh, message, which is friendship. Community and friendship. Yeah, community absolutely. and friendship. Well, now, of course, I've been at the center for four years, and you had already been in touch mm -hmm. with the center. We've been to Rome multiple times for various occasions, pilgrimages and conferences and things like that. You've been, when you were on the ground there, you were very, very helpful and, you know, welcoming and hospitable. Again, all the things that the center stands for. But you no longer are in Rome. Now you're here. Yes. Now so, I am I am no longer in Rome, which is a huge change for me because yeah. I spent eighteen of twenty-four, you know, eighteen of the last twenty-four years of my life were spent in Rome. So it's very much part of a part of me and part of my identity. But a little over a year ago, the law school got a new dean, Dean Marcus Cole. And again, through the Center for Ethics and Culture, uh, Dean Cole reached out to me and at, invited me to come and speak to the law school faculty. Of course, 
also part of friendship is not telling everybody all of the truth all of the time or you know doing things for their for their own good and then letting them know later so of course you know come to find out that this talk that i had been invited to give was actually a job talk <laughs> um, so it was uh it was an interview uh at the the law school again thanks to the generosity of the donors of the center for ethics and culture uh the dean of the law school uh was able to offer me a position to teach canon law in the law school because rightly he said that no catholic law school can you know can can call itself that if it doesn't have canon law and last october i was offered a position and so i've been at notre dame uh since the end of january but of course with with everything that's gone on this year it's hard to tell if that was january of this year or january of 10 years ago right right, time has kind of slowed down 2020 the longest exactly the longest year in history this is the 29th of april still i believe (laughs) or the 41st of april at this point so i was offered a position uh at the university of notre dame's law school and i began teaching there just a few weeks ago um so Notre Dame Law School, however, is not forming canon lawyers. It's forming civil lawyers. What do you offer the students? What and what do they need to know? Yeah, I hope I'm not just a hood ornament, and that the, a law school needs a canon lawyer yeah, a to Catholic be a Catholic law school. To be a right, right, law school. Right. That that's not what Dean Cole, uh, you know, had in mind. What he had in mind, and the vision that we're trying to work for, is to provide enough knowledge of canon law to committed, you know, young men and women who are going to go out into the world as lawyers who will then at some point you know be armed with the tools to be able to be of service to the church should they ever desire to do so and should the church ever need them so right now uh, this semester we're teaching I'm teaching a class uh, on what I did for the last 11 years. So, of course, the University of Notre Dame last year made a big commitment to being a strong voice in the fight against the sexual abuse of minors in the Catholic Church. So one of the courses that I'm teaching is just that, the church's response, the church's legal response to the crime of sexual abuse of minors. So I have uh, a group of students uh, that are that are studying that, and then a different group of students who are studying uh, the class is called Canon Law for Civil Lawyers, and um, I made the mistake on the first day of class of asking the students why they signed up for it, hoping to hear <laughs> that, that they were they had already bought into a vision that I had crafted all summer long for this course, only to have them tell me a million different other reasons. So uh, the class on Canon Law for Civil Lawyers is taken on a new life and is, uh, again, Looking at questions primarily of religious liberty in the U.S. context. So providing a background of canon law uh, in a particular area and then see how that relates or interacts with the civil law. So yesterday, for example, we had that class yesterday, and we spoke all about the sacrament of confession. Um, so that next week we can look at decisions from the various courts around the U.S. and the recent legislation passed in Australia, which seeks to remove the priest-penitent privilege from uh, civil courts. So in order to understand you know, how that works civilly, we need to first understand what the church's own understanding of the sacramental seal is, and then how and why it should best – you know, how – uh, it should best be protected in civil laws and why it should be protected in civil laws. So we're sort of th- – this course is going to be, again, going through the church's own self-understanding of a particular issue and then uh, confronting the church's understanding with the with the understanding in civil law. Wow. 
what I'm reminded of there is, of course, you're not a civil lawyer. And so <laughs> I am you're, not a civil are, lawyer. Are you like uh, like a lot of homeschooling parents where you're maybe a day ahead of the students? If I'm lucky. <laughs> if I'm a minute ahead of the I, – I, yeah. I say if I'm – so the classes are 100 minutes long. I just need to be 100 minutes ahead of them. <laughs> um, not only that, but it's a model that I used um, – and again, I, I'm not a civil lawyer. I don't even play one on TV. I have no intentions <laughs> of you know purporting to be an expert in civil law. But it's a model that I used with my architecture students in Rome. Um, I designed a theology course that was able to, in a certain sense, um, intertwine theology and architecture. And I would tell my students the first day, my responsibility is the theology. You're the architects. Right. So let's – we're going to think through this together. So in, this, in the same sense – you know, I'm the canon lawyer. You're being trained to be civil lawyers. So let's get all of the material together. I'll explain the canon law to you, and we'll read through the civil law together, and we'll come to a better understanding. So I don't, you know, I I have a very uh, humble approach in the classroom. Uh, there, I know what I know, and I know what I don't know, and I'm never embarrassed to profess ignorance on a topic because ignorance is an opportunity to learn. Sure, wonderful. Well, in addition to being connected to the center, and you have an actual title. I do. I have a couple. <laughs> well, yeah, you do. You're a member of our executive a, advisory executive committee. Advisor. I am the, and I am also the Raymond Opinionfort uh, Fellow in Canon Law. Uh, and I am now given the task, the responsibility, the honor, in a real sense, of heading up the mission stewardship pillar of the Center for Ethics and Culture. And of course, all of our listeners who are familiar with the center know we have these various pillars. So we have the you know, pillars for the pro-life pillar, the student formation pillar, uh, and now academic we also have the, acad- research, the, acad- yeah. the academic and research pillar, and now we also have a mission stewardship pillar whose goal or you know, the goal is to continue to bring in and to keep the best and brightest Catholic scholars, those uh, Catholic and non-Catholics who are committed specifically to the Catholic mission of this university. Everything, you know, works together. So the the model of the mission stewardship pillar, not only is it to encourage faculty to come, but it's to help departments across the university, so in all colleges, to offer them uh, financial support uh, to bring in uh, people, to bring in professors who are committed to the Catholic identity of the university and committed to helping form students. So it's not enough just to be committed to the Catholic identity of the university, which is awesome and great, and we need all of that that we can get. But there's also a commitment to be engaged and involved in the formation of students, which is, again, one of the primary missions of the of the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Right. Absolutely. One of the things that you have done also is uh, present multiple times at conferences that the center has sponsored, including our Vita Institute. Mm. Um, you gave a talk that we recorded and is available on our YouTube channel. We'll put a link to it in the, the show notes about resisting the throwaway culture. Yeah. Can you unpack it and just like give us a little teaser so that that's going to make us want to watch it? Well, you know, I'm not good at self-promotion. I, I know it may be hard to believe to the listeners, but that's not my favorite thing. Um, essentially, what it is is um, the throwaway culture is a phrase that comes from Pope Francis. And Pope Francis, um, as he's done in many areas of Catholic teaching, has sort of uh, not used traditional vocabulary and sort of created a vocabulary that's aimed directly at the hearts of the contemporary here. So, 
again, a tool of evangelization as old as the gospel itself. Mm-hmm. And what he's what he means with the throwaway culture is what we generally refer to as the pro-life culture, is the opposite of a, of a pro-life culture. So it would be the culture of death, to right. use John Paul II's uh, language from uh, Evangelium, Evangelium Vitae. Vitae. And, and, you know, he spoke of the culture of life and the culture of death. Pope, Pope Francis has dubbed it the throwaway culture. Again, this, this attitude where everything is negotiable and everything is disposable. Those are sort of the two primary ideologies that Pope Francis cites as being hallmarks of the throwaway culture. And so we as Catholic know immediately that not everything is negotiable. Right. The truth is not negotiable. So we already know that we're in contrast to a culture in which everything is negotiable. And we also know that not everything is disposable. Because when Pope Francis says everything, he means everything, particularly human life. When human life in the womb is is considered to be disposable, or any human life at all, so the 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 the, the poor, the neglected, the downtrodden, the elderly who were forgotten, all of these people in in his vision of the throwaway culture are considered disposable, and that's what Pope Francis has called us to fight against. Again, it's a renewal of the message that the Church has always preached about the intrinsic dignity of the human person, yeah. and Pope Francis has just changed the vocabulary to uh, for for our need to fight a throwaway culture. And so the talk is about that, and this year's talk in particular uh, includes uh, the sin of racism and the need to resist as Catholics, the obligation to resist as Catholics, the sin of racism, and to show how we are one human family united in Christ, that our that my relationship to Christ binds me to you because of your relationship to Christ, that you and I are made brothers. And there is no place in a Catholic mentality, in a Catholic's life, for considering someone other. You are my brother, you are my sister. The other does not exist for us. And that is really the message of resisting the throwaway culture. Awesome. Well, as I said, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Father John Paul Kimes, welcome home. Thank you. It's always good to come home. And now be home and stay home. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Thank you to Father John Paul Kimes. You'll find links to his Vita Institute presentation on the throwaway culture in the show notes. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. Good decisions.